<laughs> it requires a little bit of back luck. The, the, the story of how I fucked it up is, like many great stories, painfully simple, but rich with detail. Um, I forgot the end. But that's not that's not really interesting. That's that's not why that's not why I want to tell what happened. See, um part part of what I was doing this morning when I completely forgot that that we were going to record was I was reading um so my birthday was in early December and I got myself a bunch of a bunch of books for my birthday. Shocker. I know that's gonna blow everyone's <laughs> mind. Um and of them I've been working through Italo Calvino's um back catalog of like the the pretty obscure ones now so like the written and the unwritten world um uses of literature like uh the night watch stuff like that uh like pretty pretty deep cut shit so i'm reading the last novel of his called the cloven Vicu, which is about a dude who gets blown up by a cannonball that makes him evil um very tight <laughs> very tight so i was i was very i was very distracted but that alone wouldn't have distracted me enough because I can my phone will ping while I'm reading and and Eden was in fact trying to tell me hey dipshit we're recording today um I wasn't <laughs> checking my phone though because between readings I have been power washing um so God people damn it. Yeah, don't bring power washing onto this podcast so people people who don't know about the, I feel like our, our listenership will not be surprised by this. There's a game called Power Wash Simulator. Um, I love games that are bad. That's that's my bread and butter. I like I, I've played so many. There's a publisher called Radalika, um, that is not good. Um, and I've played a lot of their games. They are just <laughs> so mediocre. Um, weird sim games. Like I, I came up during the era of computer gaming where it's like you'd get into CRPGs at a certain point. And then you yeah. want crunchier and crunchier CRPGs until eventually you're downloading like artificial life simulators from like a Polish guy's website. And it just, oh, it simulates DNA. And someone's like, do you, how do you play it? And you go, oh, you open it and look at it. Yeah. Like what, what if Planescape Torment was boring? That's right. Um, and had no gameplay. Like you set initial conditions and then look at it every like couple of hours and go, oh, that's crazy. Look, yeah. that color rod. Um, so I got into like weird um simulators and thankfully there's been like a resurgence of clearly people that have the same kind of background as me like that's eventually what drove me away from a lot of like triple a gaming space because i was like i've played enough like open world whatever shooter whatever driver whatever like that kind of stuff have a lot of fun with it but you know i want the weird shit so um there came a period where like people were making sim games that took after uh one of my favorite traits from um Harvest Moon, the weirdest sim game that became super big. Because on yeah. paper, it, when I describe it, people from the current era are going to be like, oh, that's that's Stardew Valley. And credit to the Stardew Valley person, they were like, they've been open about being deeply inspired. But the premise is, you're a farmer in a new town, and you've got to whip up your farm. Also, fairies are real, and you have to go into a cave and get golden instruments from them in order to save the world so that farming can keep happening but also get milk to the mayor he's so thirsty um just <laughs> and the game doesn't tell you anything about the fairies or whatever until you're like a good chunk in and then all of a sudden it just starts having a plot um and that seems to have inspired a bunch of other people where we get like cart life which is 
one of my favorite weirdo simulators where like you run a food cart um and on paper it's just a tycoon game you know you go run a tell food them cart. tell them about the power washing though like then tell them about the power washing so so power washing simulator comes out and i look at this and i go holy shit this is it and it's a first person next gen power washing game you get different jobs to go wash different things like a van um uh, a penny farthing um a house a second atlantis hey hey no spoilers i'm getting there so we're (laughs) so i'm cleaning shit and you get nozzles you get money from these jobs and you can use those to buy new nozzles so you can wash better or more powerful power washers or watch out for it eden you're gonna lose your mind i'm ready soap no, I wasn't ready. It's so nuts. You can buy soap for stone, wow, plastic, for metal, all different kinds of soap. Also, um, Atlantis is real. So they, they hit you with that a bit of the way in. You you find an aura calibre. Wait, wait, no, I have a question though. Um so is this game uh platinous then? I believe so. Um mm. so you run into um uh there's a volcano in the town that you're in, which is set in america and europe and south america naturally of course um and uh there's a volcano and the mayor is doing shady stuff that's causing a lot of dirt mm. to spray everywhere which is why you have to clean everything yeah he, also, he's a mayor yeah that, that's what mayors do yeah at one point you clean the mayor's drill car um that he's been using to drill car through the underground of the the city cool um uh, all the cats in the town have disappeared um, and it is believed uh, that they are being sacrificed at the local town volcano um, by cultists to keep the volcano from exploding, which it turns out mm. is very nearly true. It's that cats have a psychic connection to Atlantis and the volcano is attached to the Pacific Wait, Rim. This is all in the power washing simulator this game. This is in the power washing game. Um, uh, the cats, uh, the volcano is attached to the Pacific Rim and if it blows up, It'll blow the whole Pacific Rim and darken the skies mm. for about a thousand years. That's that's how volcanoes work. That's true. Um, a uh, a uh, uh, time travelers from the year twenty seven hundred show up in the ah. flying saucer, uh, which can't mm. run anymore because it's too dirty. And when you clean it, uh, mm. they've come back to the past for the recipe for red velvet cake, which they have lost. Um, because of the I volcan- I don't like any of this because of the volcano a giant orichalcum statue of a fish man arises out of the deserts of america europe south america and after you clean it it fires a beam from its head crystal Uh, this is just this is just troika yes um the beam (laughs) strikes the time travelers um and it's from there that you're able to relay to them all the stuff that's happening with the, the missing cats and the volcano and the statue uh, there's also a big hand, a giant hand that you have to clean that's pointing towards the ocean. And uh, the final wash of the game, uh, immediately after washing the giant hand, you have to wash a regular plant. Um, so, so listen, uh, just just so you're aware, this all started with Langdon telling me, let me tell the listener how I almost fucked up this episode. Yes. Um, and it has turned into a full synopsis of power washer simulator Look, which by the way all credit what credit is due i did not know was this deep or the, this insane so yeah the final thing is that atlantis is real 
and that the time traveler, in order to stop the volcano, to thank you for giving them the recipe for red velvet cake, traveled back even further back in time to Atlantis to show them how to make a volcano-stopping machine that they put in the middle of the ocean and then covered in filth so that you would go to it and it would only be activated if it got fully washed. So the final level of the game is you power washing a bunch of murals of you made by Atlanteans, <laughs> which is in the Pacific, by the way. Um, uh, and when you finish washing everything, a giant crystal appears at the top of a big pyramid that you have to climb to the top of and power wash. Because again, the only gameplay in this game is power washing stuff. That's it. You're just power washing. Also, you do clean the big shoe that the woman lives in in the story. Also, a gingerbread house of Hansel and Gretel. Um, uh, yeah, after you clean the big gem, there is a fucking cutscene where uh, the mayor attempts to blow up the gem with a fighter jet, and then the time travelers come and zap the mayor and shoot him down <laughs> so that the gem can stop the volcano. And then there's a post-credits cutscene of you finding the missing cat from the beginning of the game. He wasn't being sacrificed. He'd crawled into your van to sit in a bucket. Um, well, so, that's the episode. So I've been, I've been absorbed in the power washing game, which, again, once you hear all that, I think it makes a lot more sense that this isn't just an autism self-soothing simulator, which is what, what you, I what, thought it was. What, wait, no, 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 no. Wait, it, it, makes, it makes sense that that is the only thing that it is. I mean, none of what you said makes it any less autistic sounding, I gotta say. Okay, that's true. Especially, <laughs> I haven't even hit you with the best part. I'm not going to describe it too much. Ironic, given that this is already hitting the 10-minute mark. But there's four DLC packs for this game. It's Back oh to the Future, God. Final Fantasy VII, SpongeBob no. SquarePants, no. and Lara Croft. No, oh, La you couldn't have said like a pair of words more traumatizing and shocking to me than Lara Croft <laughs> DLC for it, policy. It's especially policy. weird because having gotten all the way through the game, I now see that all the DLC is thematically relevant, which is the craziest part, because like Spongebob with Atlantis, Lara Croft with the like ancient civilization, um, Final Fantasy VII with the future tech, and Back to the Future with all the time travel. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I, I, I gotta ask, which Lara Croft? Is it the PS2 square boobs? No. Lara Croft? It, oh. Not PS2. Even better. It's the PS1. Oh my god, they go back. Uh-huh. They uh, go yeah, back. Yeah, you can power wash the Krusty Krab and also the invisible car um, that uh, <clears throat> Wow. Anyway. That's why I, have... I almost missed our episode. So then Eden's like, I'm going to just record a solo episode. And my bright idea, again, having forgotten why he was saying that, I'm like, yo, when you're done, I have a solo episode I'd like to record too. And it's at this point that Eden reminds me, I, again, have not checked my phone at all by this point. You dipshit, I'm only recording a solo episode because we're supposed to record an episode today. If you're going to record one and I'm going to record one, why? And I'm like, oh. Oh, uh, we could record together, which I deeply regret, by the way, because I just <laughs> had 11 minutes of Power Wash Simulator explained to me. So I had a whole, a whole thing. Um... <laughs> And I'm just gonna, I was, I, there's no segue, right? There's no like um, connective tissue. So I'm just gonna go with it. And yeah, let's hop into it. Let's hop into it. So here's a thing that I am now experiencing for the first time. 
how weird it is to live in a university town, a college town, and then have it empty by, uh, by like 50, 60% yeah. when the semester is not happening. Like when I first got here, we got here during August. It was empty, right? Because all the students weren't in at Brown yet. And now it's just empty again. Like I'm looking outside my window right now and the house in front of me that usually has like 10 or 12 students um, living there is completely dark and empty. Um, and it kind of got me thinking a lot about um, just the use of urban space or, or the construction of urban space in, in, in the US and like differences between it and the rest of the world, especially because the book that we're going to talk about today continues like a death sentence tradition where it's one of my um, most uh, like the one of the topics that I'm most interested in, which is urbanity. And the book that we're going to be talking about is very urban um, and specifically deals with the tensions like between urban and suburban and otherwise um, spaces. So it, these past few weeks, I've been thinking about like how the route, not the only route, but like one of the major routes of all of the ills of American society is the use of space. Um, and it's one which is not really talked about, right? Like everybody talks about money, right? That's the cliche root of all evil capitalism and so on. And, and we mentioned some of this in when we discussed infrastructural space and so on, but like it's really hard for me to explain how pernicious and widespread the way that Americans see space, and I'm not talking about space as in the final frontier, right? I'm talking about space as in the, ge the geographical, the geometric uh, property of objects, right? Of reality. Um, how, how pernicious their perspective on space is. And, and to do so, maybe I'll like, give you a Gedanken experiment, a thought experiment. Um, imagine how history would look like if... I'm going to commit the primary sin of alternate history. You'll forgive me for doing that. Um, imagine how different like American and world history would have been if the colonies would have expanded in a European way, right? Like if the colonies stayed European cities and didn't gobble up the entire fucking continent um, as part of the, you know, <clears throat> colonialism, extractivism, manifest destiny, all that racist, like genocidal bullshit. Like imagine if you had the East Coast and that had like Boston, New York, but like Charleston was more like Paris rather than it was like Atlanta, right? Yeah. Less poly, more dense, more populated. And Boston and Manhattan and New York as well, not Manhattan obviously, but New York as well and other cities. Like today in the current state of things with how hungry the monster that is the U.S. was for resources and, and, and land and, and space, it still has more natural parks and more open spaces than any other country, almost any other country on the planet. And that's with the like insanely um, feverish gobbling up of space. So imagine how much space and how much natural resources the country would have had if it had not gobbled up all that stuff. And of course, things like not genociding the Native Americans because you don't need to like fucking kill everyone for every single stretch of land. Right? Like, just try to imagine 
how different American society would have been if that if that was the case. And then, of course, the, the point of alternate history, if done well, is to like roll it back to what actually happened, and just think about like how fucked up what an American city really is. And last thing I'm going to say, and then I'm really interested in in, in your thoughts, is I don't even live in an American city. I live in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, which that's, has, that's about as European of a city as you can get. In. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And like this entire area of the US, and I would even include where you live in that area, right? Like the great Boswash kind of area, right? like Boston, Washington, megacity. It has so little in common with the rest of the US, right? Especially in terms of like density, distances, infrastructure, like this area of the US has a pretty, not great, but like a functioning railway service. Um, whereas the rest of the US has none, forget non-functioning, just doesn't have any rail service. Um, it's denser, it's more populated, it's less poly. And even when I'm here in this, like the most urbane area of the US, it still feels empty, distant, atomized, and, and just like completely um, ignorant of how much fucking space it takes without that being necessary in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's it's an aspect of American life that I really, um, I've grown in a weird way to be quite resentful of when, like, European um, or, uh, uh, like, Mediterranean uh, commentators will speak about certain issues as it regards to, like, the construction of the American psyche. Because... As you were mentioning, that kind of that kind of sense of immense distance, even when surrounded by people, unless you are in the densest of dense American cities, is this like deeply, deeply pernicious thing that affects our our cognizance of of space around us. Like sometimes people in other I, I even ran into this when I moved into this area. Um I, I now live closer to Washington, DC. Um, I grew up in a semi-rural area where it was like, yeah, if you want to go visit a friend, you're driving 25 to 40 minutes, and that's just what you do. Um, and not so much that, you know, like bemoaning that kind of that kind of life, but then all of a sudden you encounter people who have quite literally a denser life. And if you're talking about something that's more than a couple minutes walk from a metro stop and you're talking to friends that like live in the city all of a sudden that's kind of like ah you're really out of the way i'm not sure you know can you pick something else um and it 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 makes me wonder how certain books like um like blood meridian uh or, or texts like that that really engage with like the guts of the american experience in a certain way and like the mythological substrate that then becomes the psychic substrate that we build, you know, our, our individual psyches off of how those are interpreted by people outside of that space. Cause like <clears throat> what's funny is we have like a long legacy in the world of literature of like studying the European classics that we found the, the whole Western notion of literary fiction um, and the Western canon. So it's like, okay, well you may not have lived, in london or in paris or in berlin or in milan or in rome or things like that but if you study literature you will 
at a certain point get a sense of the flesh of that area um obviously i don't know exactly how accurate it is because it's conveyed through art not through experience but um it it does sort of like i think sometimes about how come something like moby dick for me is so like primally affecting and if i remember correctly this like didn't speak super strongly to you like not that you don't get why people like it just like it just didn't have that impact but 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 i think that's an excellent point because look at like the great american literary figures and how and i don't mean this in a derogatory way it's just it's just an attribute right that has it can be done well or not a lot of those books are empty right empty with distance blood meridian is a fantastic example yeah a lot of blood meridian is like is 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 dotted with like the howling wind of empty space right and distance and, and and you know what did it really well if we're talking about um comic mccarthy the adaptation of no country for old men conveyed that sense in a really um powerful way the movie adaptation that is of like showing how much of the u.s is empty right i mean people live there there are people a lot of people millions of people but there's so much fucking space and it's utilized to such a um like an open and um wasteful way that it's a millions of people alone in a huge area right like i think the only funnily enough there are two countries or three countries i think which can be said to be the same but at least two of them have have done things really differently one of them is russia right which is another massive 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 country with vast parts of it that people by the way on across the world never see because it's not the it's not moscow or saint petersburg or whatever it's not like the quintessential and often racist depiction of russia like and how many cultures and how many places make up that idea of russia but they have in literature and, and elsewhere a whole different relationship with that emptiness right than the american one right and then the other example, I'm leaving the most interesting example for last. The other example is Australia, which is like the America of the uh, Southeast Asian um, area of the world. And it's, it's kind of fostered a very similar culture of like individuality. But because a lot of it is really uninhabitable, it's lended itself more to like this exploratory frontiersman kind of Again, it's all colonial and racist and genocidal, right? But it's just the, the trappings are kind of different. And then the most interesting example, I think, is China, right? Oh, actually, there's another really interesting example, which is India. Um, both those countries have done something completely different with how they look at their spaces, right? China, in many ways, and again, criticism aside, that's not the point, you know, sees the emptiness of China as a problem to be solved, right? Um, they see uh, um, territories and far-off principalities as places to connect and to uh, develop, right? Um, sometimes to really bad results, sometimes to, to good ones, probably both in most cases. And then India is also a very interesting example because it's also like a massive, it's not even a country, a subcontinent. Um, but there, there's this kind of perception of... Um, diversity not in the not in the leftist sense right of like celebrating multiculturalism but just the fact of the number of languages and cultures and 
uh, styles of food and, and, and art and so on, the, the, where space is seen like a, as a place to prosper right, and a place to proliferate. It's so interesting like how the American, I don't know what, what's the word I'm looking for here, like job, the, like the way they've approached space, the deconstruction of space has been to say space is a place where individual nodes float and it enables them to talk to each other. That's what space is. Nothing happens in space. It's just the area in between nodes, right? And then to be less like <laughs> Delusian about it, think about, okay, so this is, sorry if I'm rambling. It's, it's like these thoughts are very um, fresh in my mind. Like I've never seen people so cluttered more than Americans. I've been to many American homes, and I'm sorry to my friends if you're listening, like, I love you, but your houses are a fucking mess. There's so much shit in the house, so, many, so much furniture, so many knickknacks, so many um, things, like a lot of things, because the house is the primary um, coordinate, right? When you meet friends, you meet them at their house, and even if you go outside and, and go to a bar or something, which, by the way, is, I found is like super rare here. Um, it, it still all happens in configuration of the house. It's it's crazy, and some of it is not under like you know it's not intentful because you know the stuff like winter, right? It's really really cold in New England. I'm not gonna sit in a park <laughs> with anybody right now. It's just fucking cold here. Um, we, we, fine, it's not necessarily a criticism, and it doesn't matter if it happened because of quote unquote objective reality. But you know, Europe is also cold. Right, yeah, like Europe, no, notoriously, <clears throat> you have large chunks of uh, Europe yeah. that are significantly further north on the. I always forget which one's longitude and which one's latitude. I think it's latitude. Latitude is the vertical. Uh, yes, the oh. no, the horizontal one is latitude. Um, so wait, is it now? You confused no, me. No, I think latitude is the one that goes like they they get tighter as they get closer to the poles. Latitude is the one that's horizontal from our perspective. Like the equator is is latitude. Okay, that is the one that I meant. Yeah, longitude yeah, yeah, yeah. is the one that. That's that's the one that, that measures that determines. horizontal through vertical, and latitude is the one that measures the vertical through horizontal segmentation. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. The one that the one that dictates climate bands is latitude. I'm so um, bad with these names, but yeah, it's like large chunks of Europe are further north of it, including like literally all of scandinavia i think all yeah. of england is further north yeah yeah America. providence providence and that's north right providence is on the latitude of spain yeah i was like to say, the, i think spain is the furthest uh the center of spain into america that um that europe yeah. really gets and and i lived in northern england and and of mm -hmm. course the culture of england influenced the culture of the u.s and in many ways that individualism and atomization you can trace its roots back to like Anglican culture, but it's still less fucking atomized in the UK where it's colder than in the US. Like, I, I at first I was like, maybe it's Providence, right? Like, it's not a very populous place, very big, like university town. Uh, maybe it's just this. So I, I went into Boston. Same thing. Like, the streets are empty. The main streets are full because people go shopping or whatever, but like the streets are empty. 
because they're vessels, they're like veins for which things move. They're not areas in which things happen. And by the way, what we're seeing today is an improved version of it because of COVID. Yeah. Right? Like famously, the first time that New York City allowed cafes to have tables on streets, which to be very clear with the Americans listening to this podcast, is the norm in every other fucking place on the planet. Yeah, you go into order, but you yeah. sit on, on in outdoor seating. Yeah, and, and you might sit inside because there's some seats inside. Maybe like you, it's cold, too cold for you or too hot. You want the AC, but the sitting outside, that, that's like the fucking norm. It took COVID to let, place, uh, let cities, um, let businesses have the outdoor seating. And then when COVID was quote unquote over, which of course it fucking isn't, we're in the middle of like this huge wave right now, it was gone. I, I was like, hell yeah, now Manhattan, at least one good thing from COVID, Manhattan will keep outdoor sitting. And then they just, didn't they were just like okay back inside it's yeah I, I ran into that when i was when i was managing a coffee shop where it's like we briefly had the ability so um due to lease agreements in america that um because the other thing is that america is built for cars um the from basically the middle of america like the vertical stripe from missouri all the way up to uh, minnesota to the west has always been built for cars because everything was so fucking far apart due to frontiersmanship and the the, the settling of that area um uh that, that we killed a shitload of people to get um just an unbelievably unholy amount of killing to get um but like the eastern chunk of america wasn't always set up so purely in a car-centered way like there used to be town centers there i mean you can still see remnants of them in cities like new orleans cities like boston cities like new york cities like providence i say remnants because once the once the highway system sort of got developed as like the uh quietly speaking the most important megastructure of the early 20th century um the, it, it's probably the second most important megastructure of the 20th century outside of, like, the internet. Um, but you can make an argument of, like, international telecommunications being up there, but it's, like, it's a big one. Because all of a sudden, people went back into these older areas and started reconfiguring older space to make it amenable to cars. And through cars, this vision of what the broader shape of america would be more or less for eternity because like if you look at like how long it will take for a highway system to like break down or be reabsorbed naturally um it far exceeds like every skyscraper like yeah like th these these things are basically here until someone tears them up and turns them into something else so we've we've made a fairly permanent change and this includes like this became part of the hyper accelerationism of and another thing that like a lot of Americans don't know. And I didn't know this till I was a bit older is that the level of hyper privatization in America has one always been higher than in Europe. We've always in the like 17 and 1800s, we were always kind of like the staging ground for weird Europeans getting kicked out of Europe who wanted to, we weren't the only ones there were any of the colonial States were basically the, the, the laboratories where they test out their like hyper individualist um Adam Smithian like libertarian dreams, but America became a really big one. Um 
But once once the 20th century got really thoroughly underway, America's loose framework of like some semblance of social structures or like communal um uh communal ties uh, built through like infrastructure and built through like the way that communities interact with one another was deliberately stripped away so that we could cram in more businesses of certain kinds. The the evolution yeah. of the car also led to a thing that in pretty much the rest of the world you're going to see mixed zoning as like the norm in a lot of places where it'll be houses and then there will be like a couple shops interspersed with houses yeah. and because it's like because if you're organically growing a community, that's what happens. You're like, oh, why would I have the grocery store 11 miles from where everyone lives when especially most people aren't using cars? Like you want it within a couple blocks, like yeah. or you want a grocer instead of like a instead of uh, we don't even call them supermarkets in America anymore. Like the whole fact that an American grocery store is fucking insanely huge compared to yeah. most grocers and like we we then start restructuring even in older cities all this like mixed zoning that would have like been intermingling a lot of things in order to create these like capitalized zones which like and, make the nightmare of like like yeah cyberpunk and, shit that forgets this is like you yeah. know it's going to be bad like you know they're yeah, not going to get it and that is a really good point about the zones and mixed use and all that stuff because it kind of brings this discussion to its point, which is not, I don't like this, right? Or this is ugly, or I personally don't like it. The problem, which is also the problem with this shit, is when you go outside and you drive or even walk, like if, if you walk 15 minutes to a zone where all the services are, you meet other people, right? It's not that I, I say that things are atomized and individual, it's because you don't see anyone. We don't yet live in in the dystopian cyberpunk reality where everybody has screens around their faces and they can't see each other. You see other people, but you have very little in common with those people in your day-to-day. -day. Like, sure, in some broad sense, you're all, like, from Providence and you're all in the U.S. and probably from the same, like, broadly, like, socioeconomical bands of, of society, but you are not localized. Right? You have been removed from your context. When you go to, when your neighborhood has a grocery store or a cafe or a barber or a vet or whatever, you go there and then you say things like, hey, did you, what about that tree that blew down during the storm? That was crazy, right? Or why are they not fixing the potholes on the street? Or we need more of X service. Or you just chat, right? Like about yourself and the people in your building. And again, I'm not going to paint you this picture as if when I was living in Tel Aviv, which is a very, 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 very dense city, like all of Israel is for obvious reasons, um, that I knew all the people in, in my building and I talked to all of them. But I knew a lot more um, of them than I do here because there aren't any people in my building. It's like my floor, um, the people who rent to us, our landlords live below us and they're nice people and we talk to them and we know who they are, great. And then that's it. And then the house next to me has 12 people and the house across the street has 12 people. If those were all mid-rises, um, like in Tel Aviv, right? it's not like skyscrapers everywhere, it's mid-rises, 
then on this block where here in Providence you have 40 people, you'd have 100. And then there's much higher likelihood of meeting people that have shit in common with you. Now, of course, we can bring it all back to politics. That kind of body, that kind of group is harder to police, right? Because then people start to get to know each other and they start to talk to each other and they start to share their pains and their disgruntlements and they start to maybe um, form tenant unions and maybe form mutual aid um, groups and stuff like that. Again, 99% of the time, I'm being very honest with you, it doesn't happen, right? Like we still live under capitalism. People's lives are still atomized, even in these more densely populated cities. Yeah, like but we wouldn't potential... have struggles. We wouldn't have even like a lot of the theory textbooks that we treasure as, as socialists emerging from those contexts if there wasn't still struggle there. Like, you know, it, it's, it's yeah. not like these things get magically solved, but... Yeah, like I, I can the speak, potential I can is speak, there. I can speak to this in a very real way in the sense of like the act of trying to talk to, so two brackets for this. One, the purely personal, in jobs that I've had, trying to talk to people about um, unionization is weird in America because this has been driven from our language. You're not supposed to think uh, communally to the point where it's even like bosses will say things like, well, you know, the store doesn't have infinite money. So like I'm giving you this raise and I can't give it to everyone, but I'm choosing to give it to you. So, you know, maybe take that into account that like you're getting a, um, uh, this, this gets paralleled in the fact of like when uh, we're seeing increasingly online in certain places, um, it's, it's as much a generational thing that like as much as certain things get better over time because of increased levels of communication, certain things seem to be getting worse. And there's a couple things about um, Zoomers that give me a little bit of concern. I mean, every generation has their struggles. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to act like this is like whatever. Um, they'll figure it out. But the way that like the notion of speaking to people when you're in shops being normal and being fine like if you see someone in a cafe and they're reading a book going like hey what's that you're reading like the way that certain people will treat that is like oh you're not supposed to do that like they're in the cafe you're supposed to we even get this mirrored in how we discuss um personal space in digital in digital environments of like the notion of personal space very real, very important, very useful. Not saying it's not, but we see it get hyperextended to really create this sense of isolationism, even in, for any other context, deeply communal activities. Um, we, we, I can turn this out a little bit further with it. Like when I would talk to people about, like, hey, if you want certain things to go forward or you want to get involved in socialist politics. Don't just be upset online. Don't just read horror stories about things that happen. Those are useful for radicalizing you and for, sh again, showing you the reality of the world, which sometimes we have to be brave and face some, frankly, pretty fucking horrific shit so that we know. It's not a hypothetical. It's a no. Um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. But at the end of the day, you need to go outside and you need to talk to your neighbors, you need to talk to your family, you need to talk to your co-workers, the, the actual people that surround you every second of your entire life, 
And the number one thing I hear is I don't feel safe talking to strangers. I don't feel safe talking to my family. I don't like, and it's this, it's not that like magically people in other countries do feel safe, but there's something just kind of, it's hard not to see the politically useful end of having, whether deliberately or accidentally created a world where we see a near pathological fear for people to engage with the real people that surround them all the time. Yeah. So to, to draw this all together and then set it up for the book discussion as well. Like the question is, again, when people talk about this stuff, they focus on aesthetic forms and that's what the conservatives do as well. Right. They post all the like, um, images of an American town from the fifties somewhere in the rust belt and, and they masturbate over how, you know, the real America is gone. Those places were also fucking lonely, like deeply lonely. People like literally lost their lives because they were so lonely and generations were medicated and, and socially oppressed just to ignore the fact of how lonely those places are. It's not about aesthetics. It's not about you living in some charming, I don't know, Gilmore Girls kind of like living in where Gilmore Girls is supposedly based on, right? Um, that's, not, that's not the point. The point is the use of space and how our living conditions are organized within it translates, we're Marxists, right? Translates into the, um, or expresses itself in the way we live and the social connections which we form. But it all begins in the material arraignment of our realities. So when you live far apart from each other, and again, it doesn't have to be literally far apart. I don't live far apart from my neighbors. They're across the street, right? But the space, the, the small number of people, the lack of mixed use, the um, encouragement to, to stay indoors and, and, and the lack of public spaces, that all creates a more individualized, atomized society. And um, it's pretty messed up. It's especially messed up because, like Foucault and many other philosophers, like they said, it disguises itself as the norm, right? Americans are literally, there are like a million memes out there, and memes always reflect some sort of truth um, of being shocked when they travel outside the U.S. And like asking why, you know, things can't be that way in the U.S. They, they could be. It's not like, I'm not saying that tomorrow Charleston could be Paris. I don't know why I chose Charleston, but whatever. Um, but American cities could become less atomized. Mixed use is not this fantasy. It's literally just a zoning issue. It wouldn't take a year, but it wouldn't take 50 either. Um, the thing is, it just creates a society that a lot of um, forces and people don't want to see. Um, and that's, that's a problem. I mean we even we even get uh for for i i'm a i'm a bit of a downer so um my 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 downer pill for this is we do in fact see and have been seeing resurgence of mixed zoning in america uh that's deliberately priced and deliberately pitched to basically quietly recreate like a white supremacist fantasy land version yeah. of 1950s america yeah. that only rich people and functionally through that mostly white people are gonna have and it's like yeah that's one of the consistent rallying cries that I think of as a socialist, I got in hot water with some people who were like, we have to have hope as communists. We have to give people hope. And I'm, I'm strongly on the end of like, I don't give a shit about hope. 
In fact, I yeah. think if you look at the arc of history, uh, I have the weird stance, but I'm firm on it, that hope is used to make people a combination of uh, lazy and then heartbroken. Because that's the other risk of hope, is that when you have it and I crush you in a certain way, you lose that hope. Meanwhile... The, the, the problem... The problem of hope is, and I agree with you 100%, I always say that hope is bad. The problem of hope is that it gives you the emotional gratification from the existence of something that doesn't exist. Yes. The act of like that's, fantasizing. Yeah, go on. It's, it, 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 that's exactly where I end, uh, land on this, where it's like some people are like, oh, well, as, as socialists and communists, we can't valorize work. Fuck that. I do valorize labor. I don't valorize work. Work is a bullshit um, hyperextension of labor that doesn't just emerge under capitalism. It's stupid to say that only capitalism creates work. That's clearly not true. But labor is fundamental to existence. That would be here even if we weren't capitalists or communists. Like that's like feeding yourself or like producing medicine so you don't die. Shit like that. That's labor. And political revolution is labor you have to like and do labor if you do it's the same thing as like getting good at an instrument or getting good at writing if you don't like practicing you will not get good because someone who does like practicing will practice more than you um yeah and like that becomes sort of the rallying cry for me in a certain way with this stuff where it's like we see capitalists give themselves the things we want the world to have. So we know yeah. that it is possible. It's being done. It's just not being done for everyone or for us. And it's like... Yeah. It's very fashionable to um, shit on William Gibson, but his quote of like, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed, is so true. Even if it's a cliche, it's like a soundbite. It's very true. I All like the things how, that you want. Fun fact, he doesn't know where that was said. It's in no printed works of yeah. his. And so people yeah, yeah, yeah. think he said it like out loud at a party once. And yeah. everyone was just like, that's so good. That's I'm so quoting good. you forever. Yeah. It, it, it's mimetic, right? It's outside of his control. Okay. Um, let's, do, let's do music and then talk about the book that we want to talk about. Um, I want to play something by one of the most underrated albums I feel this year, like no one is talking about this album, which I feel, I feel like is a big shame and I'm going to use my platform to um, correct that. This is a band called Pessimistic and Mystic is, is like spelled like mystical. Um, they released an album this year called Burnt Offering. I think it's their debut. They're from Canada. This is like, it's so hard to explain this. On, on the surface, it's blackened death metal and you don't, want to put like experimental or extreme or anything before it but then you listen to it and there's just something about it that is off and off in the sense that it just doesn't sound like anything else the vocals have this you know that um operatic tinge which is often associated with avant-garde black metal um i think Lichgate or any of those kind of groups that their names are, oh uh howling sycamore right that kind of like operatic over the top like vocal quality it's very much here but but blended with death metals like robust um guttural growls it's super fucking good it's really short um it's like 25 minutes or something like that but it goes really hard and and no one is, is talking about this 
I'm going to be playing the title track called Burnt Offering and kind of try to listen to this in two, like with two ears. One, just listen to the surface and go like, yeah, this is death metal. <laughs> this is like muscular death metal. <laughs> but then the other ear, listen to all the shit that's going on in the background and what the vocals do like to the, to the tonality of the track and go, huh, this is actually really interesting. And yeah, I could see calling it experimental. Try and like um, catch those two um, parts. So this is um, Burnt Offering by Pessimistic of the same album. Enjoy.
Okay. And now we have a, we have a real treat for you. Um, so I've said multiple times on this podcast that the way that I buy books today is either someone recommends it to me, someone that I know, or I stumble on them in bookshops. And then a lot of the times I will read the blurbs. And I don't read the blurbs themselves. I don't care about if someone said, this book is fantastic. Because if you don't know, blurbs are fake. Um, they're like, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Quid pro quo kind of thing where your publisher gets other authors to write blurbs for you. And then you write blurbs for them. And a lot of them are like fake. A lot of them are real, but a lot of them are fake. You look at the names, right? And which authors have blurbed this book? And you learn to tell which authors actually blurb books and they only blurb the good books. But the big one is Jeff Vandermeer. If Jeff Vandermeer blurbs a book, just buy it. Okay? It will be good. If he recommended it, I've read like 10 books now, I think, just because Jeff Vandermeer blurbed them and they were all excellent, except one maybe. Um, and there are a few other names. One of them um, is uh, a writer that we are um, fans of, which is Amal El-Muhtar, um, who wrote uh, This Is How You Lose Time War. If you haven't read that or um, somehow haven't heard of it, then you are <laughs> messing up and you should go and read it. Amal is very good at blurbing books and usually lends um, their name to really good works of art. Now, she did more than blurb our next book, um, The Saint of Bright Doors by Vajra Chandrasekhar. I hope I pronounced that right. I apologize if I didn't. Um, she reviewed it and she wrote this and this will kind of like just sell you the book immediately. The Saint of Bright Doors is the best, the best book I've read all year. Protean, singular, original. It forces me to come up with the most baffling comparisons like what if Disco Elysium was written by Sophia Samatar? <laughs> it's just like, first of all, can I get Disco Elysium written by Sophia Samatar? I would pay a lot of money to play Disco Elysium written by Sophia Samatar. Um, yeah, so... Fun if fact, you, I have yeah. somehow not played that game yet. I've been power walking How? instead. <laughs> no, Go play Disco Elysium, <laughs> my, you stupid person. Yeah, my, um, my taste is a dumb moron. <laughs> yeah, so I got I got fucking uh, I got Horizon the day that Elden Ring came out instead of Elden Ring. <laughs> I chose wrong. I like that Horizon game, but I chose wrong. I still haven't played yeah. Elden Ring. Bad and wrong. <laughs> um, so in case you don't know, Disco Elysium is one of my favorite games of all time, and Sofia Samatar is one of my favorite authors of all time. So it seems only natu natural that I would like The Saint of Bright Doors, um, which would be wrong because I don't like the book. I fucking adore it. I love this book. I, it's really, really, really good. Um, and I can't wait to like, you know, spend time with after reading it and thinking about it because The Saint of Bright Doors is the, the other like, comparison that I want to do is The Etched City by K.J. Um, Bishop. And if you haven't heard my episode I on that, that, go and listen to it. And that's, if you, if you know me from the last like few years, that is high praise because The Etched City is one of the best books that I've read for this podcast and it haunts me literally every day. They, they, what's in common with them, and by the way, Book of the New Sun, is um, a lot of this book... The Saint of Bright Doors and The Edge City, and of course, The Book of the New Sun, happens 
beneath the text and beneath the surface. And a lot is just not really explained to you. And also, the book just ends, which I really like. There's no like, you know, the story is about a world that is happening. So there's no cutoff point. It just sort of ends. And there's not a lot of closure because that's not how reality works, right? So let's do the, the synopsis and then we can talk about the book. So Fetter is our protagonist, sort of. We'll get, that at, we'll get to that at the end. Um, and he is unchosen, okay? He is the son of um, a saint, the uh, perfect and kind, who is the leader of this uh, cult, but he is the estranged son of this leader, raised by his mother. Her name, not her real name, but what she goes by is Mother of Glory. Um, and he has been raised to kill his father. His mother hates his father for some reason we don't know. She has sort of like a competing sort of cult. And she is raising Fetter to kill his father. But Fetter um, runs away from that. That happens like off screen in between the main story and the exposition of the book. And he decides to, you know, deny his fate and be unchosen and live his life um, like a person. A few things about Fetter. Um, his shadow was ripped from him when he was a child, so he casts no shadow. Um, and because he has no shadow, he is not grounded to the world. So if he loses focus, he floats, like endlessly. And by the way, maybe um, Vajra will listen to this and tell me if I'm right, but there are many instances in the book where Fetter is afraid to fall into the sky, which is what Severian says in book three of Book of the New Sun. If you remember, he looks at the sky and he's afraid to fall into it. So I wonder if there's some sort of like um, uh, influence here. Um, I would and then be lastly, mind, it would Fetter, be mind boggling if he didn't have any influence from it. Uh, we'll, we'll get into some of that later, but it would, it would be truly bewildering. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. M maybe we can uh, sort that out after this episode. So, um, and then the last thing about Fetter is he was built for violence, right? He's a, sh he's a knife. His, his mother describes him as a knife and teaches him this like song of sharpening to hone himself and knives, actual knives. Um, and he was just purpose built to destroy his father and his cult. And uh, a lot of his life is around, you know, trying to escape that. Now he runs away to um, Luriat, which is one of the big cities um, to the north of where he um, grew, which is the southern part of the peninsula. And this city um, has a lot of really weird shit happening in it, but mostly if you close a door, any door that is completely closed, and then you ignore it, it will turn into a bright door. What is a bright door? You, can't, you can no longer open it. You can't destroy it. Um, it kind of it's closed from both sides, right? You can't like go around it. It's always the door. And some people, specifically the unchosen, are all, um, they feel emanations coming from these doors. Uh, cold winds, um, uh, headaches, uh, nausea, and so on. Um, Fetter kind of gets embroiled in this plot. Not communist, maybe more anarchist, but some sort of like seditionist plot to overthrow the powers that be 
um, in Luriat, and part of the plot involves the bright doors. And that's that's kind of like the synopsis. If you don't want any spoilers, then close the podcast now, and we'll see you next time. But that's kind of like what the book does. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out a uh, a pet complaint of mine that people people in my world are not going to be surprised by. So whoever designed the cover for this book really did it fucking dirty. <laughs> like they, they did it. Ter- yeah. So Eden. Yeah. So I have a slightly different mechanism for finding books. It's it's pretty similar to Eden's, but like I will admit that I'm a big sucker for cover design, mostly because um you learn if you're a really attentive reader um like like autistically level attentive to to be fucking blunt um that certain certain publishers will really go the extra leap to to give you a cover sense of overall aesthetic that is both commensurate with the work and also meant to be like welcoming like um we've raved here a bunch about new york review of books which we um modern the most recent editions of modern that you can find are through them but they do a whole bunch of, uh, I've called them grad school bangers before. Still true. They do a fucking great job. Um, Like, uh, Mariner does a fucking great job. Um, Whole bunches of ones. This is from Tor.com, who also had uh, a little window uh, that, like, yeah. me and Gareth covered, where they felt really, really exciting because they were breaking a lot of new kinds of voices in science fiction and fantasy, and then kind of became a, a punching bag semi-recently for, for not entirely unfair reasons for a lit there's a little bit of just people grinding an axe about like john scalzi's annoying online sure okay don't follow him um but there are there are some more fundamental ones um i mentioned that because they also have a track record in recent years of picking like covers that don't feel good i don't know how else to put it like before i don't know it's bad change design people but this looks like especially with the name you look at uh, if you read a lot of contemporary fiction as well like um i will go routinely to to some bookshops and i'll look at the tables of new books that have come out new hardbacks new softbacks um they have a pretty good spread of different types of writers different types of genres stuff like that this looks like the and I'm I'm saying looks like because it is not this to, to be very clear. It looks like the um like middle brow uh diversity hire life in the big city novel that like a, a bookstore will put out. So it's like, look, we're not racist, we'll we'll also put out the same the kind of books that you'd get from a mediocre white dude or a mediocre white woman, we'll put we'll put out the same mediocre thing from other cultures. Um, like both the name, the font, the the li- So when you open it, and it feels that I was about to compare it to Troika as well. It's not nearly Troika level <laughs> weird, but no. It's, it's but a, what is it? To be fair, it's it's the same kind of thing. Of like he gives you a premise and goes, but this book isn't about the premise. The premise is more the circumstances that ground a character. The vast meat of the book even as plotty stuff is going on. There's a lot of, there is plotty stuff that happens in the book. Uh, Most of it is about just sitting with Fetter as a person. Like it's much more similar to how like in to to draw to book of the new sun, like he says in the, in the beginning, like, yeah, I become the, I become the emperor. I become the new sun. That's like 
duh, and you're going to hear yeah. now. But then most of the book is him just dicking around. And if you don't have a taste for sort of literary stuff, you'd be like, you know, get the fuck on with it. But this sort of sits more in the... Um... Here it's more like... I, 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 I think only when I finished the book, I was like, oh, what he did here was... This is Chekhov's gun, but the gun is the protagonist. Yeah. But like he tells you, this guy is going to kill his father. Right? Like that's... I mean, he doesn't say that in so many words, but it's very obvious from like listening to the metaphors of like fate and inescapable fate and so on. But the way there and what happens to Fetter is almost as important. By the way, especially like in Book of the New Sun, it's a pilgrimage, right? Like you're seeing a, a religious entity treading this path of work and metamorphosis and, and, and labor and, and change to get to this apotheosis. Now, he, in this case, what um, Vajra does, which is really interesting, Fetter doesn't want to walk the path. Like, l- by definition, he is unchosen. One of the best parts of the book is that he goes to a support group for other people who are unchosen as well. That they were the children of the Messiah in their religion. And, and maybe I need to delay on that a bit and, and draw one of the most important points about the book. The area in which the book happens is very clearly influenced by Vajra's um, home uh, um, country of Sri Lanka. Um, Akusdab, which is where Fetter grows up and Mother of Glory um, lives, used to be an island to the south of this peninsula-like supercontinent, and that's Sri Lanka and India, right? Um, but was changed into a continuous, uh, continuous landmass by Fetter's father. By the way, Fetter's father is like super powerful. He can change history so that Akusdab was never an island and, and was yeah, always like a this, continuous this, landmass. This this ties to a a, a real myth of a, like a land bridge that rose. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's like the more you know about the the South Asian and Indian subcontinent, sort of like uh, mythic and historical structure, the more it's like, oh, yeah, this is. And most especially, Luriat is this melting pot of religions and cultures and aesthetics and also castes, hierarchies, eugenics, racial science, and so on. Like the city has an almanac where the most favored races are listed each year and people live by this almanac, like politics are designated by these almanacs. Things like aid and financial institutions run by this almanac. And it's very obvious referencing the, not just the multiculturalism and the um, diversity of Sri Lanka and India, especially the south part of the Indian subcontinent, but also its um, obsession with supremacy, racial um, lines, caste systems, and so on. So just like that area of the world has many, many different religions, and a lot of the religions there are syncretic in the sense that they can incorporate other iconography and deities into its mythology and religious underpinnings the same thing is true for um luriat I mean, and that's how go there's, on there, there's there's kind of a, a a historical lesson about the indian subcontinent and it's sort of a cultural mythic history that that helps make sense of a lot of this which is um and it's mostly that i think people outside of that space uh if you haven't been told this will have a completely different read so uh hindu supremacists um are basically the Indian version of, like, Christian supremacists and Christo-fascists in Europe and in America. 
Um, and by that, I mean almost down to the fucking letter in the sense that Hinduism was kind of sort of invented in like, I think it's 1600, 1600s, 1700s. Um, the... And there was a lot of cultural work put into obscuring that fact because the broader branch that it emerged from, the broader historical context uh, and cultural context, is the Vedic faith. So that's sort mm -hmm. of the, the proper name for like all of the different like little bubbles that can bump into each other and absorb each other and expel each other. Um, like Buddhism is considered in a lot of ways to be likewise in the same branch of Vedic traditions because Siddhartha famously like was a Vedic priest for a period. And then when he attained enlightenment in, at least in his mind was found in like almost like a, a commentariat to existing Vedic texts rather than like overthrowing them. Um, Mentioning this because like a lot of the struggles that they wind up encountering with like the emergence of Hinduism uh, in the shape that we see, gets driven a lot by their own, like, hard right-wing fascist class as a means to, like, subjugate, um, like, the Muslim population, which has been present in, in the Muslim-slash-Arab population, because obviously it's been there since before Islam, has been there since, like, like, 200 AD or something. Like, like the Persians encountered uh, the Indians, and there's always been that kind of intermingling. So it's like, it's, I mostly bring this up because it's very easy to view, I think, some of the comments that this makes on casteism as being um, older than it actually is in the form that it currently is. Because it's like the shape of how casteism, which is so, still an existing but, bigotry structure in India. But, but to be clear, the book does exactly, I mean, it criticizes exactly the process that you're talking about. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, going, I'm bringing that up to sort of make legible certain parts of the book that were like, I only know this from having read it from other people who are either from that area or like books about yeah. it. But it's but, but like, let, let, let's make it explicit. The perfect in kind, as I hinted at, has the power to rewrite history, right? Um, he can go back and like make it so that it was always this thing instead of an island was always like a mountain range, right? And be, he did that most importantly when he, he gained his power um, after he, he's like a colonial explorer, right? A conquistador that arrives at this island, Akuzdab, and steals their traditions. At first, he's friendly, and he falls in love with the local, which becomes Fettel's mother, um, and he um, ingratiates himself with her family, but he does all that just to gather power and learn all of their traditions and their magic and so on. And then when he becomes powerful enough, he uses that magic to completely erase them and their culture. When he changes the island to have always been a part of the peninsula, he completely destroys their culture. And in, in the wake, he like changes 3,000 years of history, and he makes a mess of it. Like He completely fragments um, the history of Luriat. They have this long history of like the first occupation, the second occupation, the third occupation, and like the different race sciences and aesthetics and architecture. That's all fake. Like he built all of these all of this fake history, and now his um, the main thing he's trying to do in the book, which is all subtext and, and only gets revealed at the end, is to come back and fix that fragmentation and, and make everything adhere to his religion, which is called the path above. The I path mean, behind is like all the people he left behind. One, one more thing. 
the methods that he uses to create that unity is plague and pogroms, right? Like yeah. he <laughs> builds his religion to spread disease so that people die and then to harvest the um, fear and anxiety and violence that um, the caste system and the plagues and so on create to purge, ethnically cleanse all the undesirables, bringing everything into like one religion beneath him. Now, <clears throat> here's, here's something that I think is the point of discussing all of this. There are a lot of books out there that try to do what this book is doing, which is use um, fantasy and specifically like undermine fantastical tropes to talk about colonialism and imperialism, right? We've seen like dozens and dozens of books try to do that in the last 10 years. Some of them successfully, right? Like Stranger in the Londria by Sophia Samatar that also interrogates a lot of these ideas. But most of them miss something very, very important about imperialism and specifically the role of knowledge in it. Um, when imperialism encounters the new world, a new world, right? It doesn't just um, create a false history and then continues to believe that false history contrary to all evidence. It literally makes that false history real. Okay? It goes out and it changes whatever it needs to change in order to make that history real. For example, when, which we talked about in, in the intro, of course, when the American colonist decided that America was empty, he went and made it empty. Okay? He emptied it of people by slaughtering them. And then he edited everything. All the records, all the, all the evidence, all the, um, all the observations, he excised, edited, burnt, outlawed, any other version of the story. In effect, he made America always to have been empty, right? And, and so many books trying to do this, like, criticism of, of imperialism stop at they build false images and then believe those images and don't go the extra step of they have the power to take those images and enforce them on reality, which is exactly, one sec, which is exactly <laughs> what Bright Dolls does so well. Right? By, by giving the perfect in kind that power, this is what it's saying. Imperialists can shape reality and rebuild history around their ideology, and that's why they're so dangerous. And so th this gets that, I, I have one little Bon motto on Crow before I get into the thing I'm making here, just because this has been sort of, the the metaphorical structure of the Bright Doors, I think, is is pretty easy to parse if you're um, literate. So I harp on this a lot, of like the difference between literacy and knowing how to read is knowing how to read is you can read words in an order and figure out what a sentence like is saying and then literacy is like you get the, the structures that are happening um and a lot of people are functionally illiterate um mostly not their fault mostly just we teach people very poorly how to read um but there is a little bit of like hey, you can learn later on um and you, you know how many people do the the function of the bright doors i think is is kind of interesting and this is where i can see the book getting maybe into hot water with certain people who uh poo poo the sort of 
current mode of Tor.com because it's a pretty clear metaphor for like paths life can take that are then not taken and in fact closed off to us literalized and so the unchosen the people who are deliberately trying to walk away from destiny become far more sensitive to the psychological weight of pondering the lives they could have had um and how this can affect yeah. how you engage with the world pretty pretty clear um the thing that i think that i like that he does with it and this ties into the stuff that you were saying is one of the <clears throat> there's a bimodal structure to the psyche under empire. And this is, um, it doesn't have to be literal empire. It's sort of any hegemonic force. And that's archaeology and architecture. Um, so the, the archaeology component is, it, it, these move in opposite directions. The, the architecture is, uh, to switch metaphor language for a second, it's uh, like the way an amoeba will encounter a new, kind of bit of information in its world, like a single-celled organism, a, a nutrient, or something like that. And it will incorporate it, and then break it apart, and try to figure out what it can do with all the parts. But typically, it is segmenting all the parts and separating them from one another. It's not letting them be contiguous in yeah. that old shape. It is constructing a new thing. And that new thing can be of varying qualities, like this is also how progress is made, but it's also how horrific colonial and genocidal violence is made. So it's like, it's a wildly non-uniform system in terms of its output with the same kind of thing. Um, one thing that he does pretty well is become cognizant of how complex these architectural machines are. Um, the archaeological component, however, is similar to what you were saying with like making the past real in that uh, going back and literally fucking with either the historical record, obscuring certain things, sometimes it's not even literalized in that kind of sense. It's just producing a large enough volume of, say, academic literature or popular thought or popular belief that fully occludes the view of the world before. Like, we saw this uh, in America, to tie back to it, when it came back to union culture, Unions were fucking big in America until a cultural moment rounded a bend and the fire was snuffed. And now you would be hard-pressed to get people to believe, or even in certain spaces like really actually remember, in the 50s and 60s, your parents had a union job, and then the union was crushed. Like, even that kind of evidence is, like, stripped away. But the thing yeah. is, it's not like this goes back to one moment. There are continuous false histories that are constructed, that overlap with one another, that become syncretized with one another exactly the way that Vedic faiths do. Um, it's one of the reasons why studying Vedism becomes really big in certain philosophical space, because given how many thousands and thousands of years that entire mythic structure has been thoroughly documented, we get a much better sense of how communal, communal myth-making uh, changes shape over time uh, like that that's one of the best records globally for that kind of study um but this raises the problem the massive 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 problem for the figure under colonialism whether you're a colonized body or an imperial body in in this structure it doesn't matter is how do you do 
the real archaeology to unearth real history and not unearth one false history to get a second false history. Or unearth, in this sense, both, we're going to assume there's only two, both false histories, and accidentally acquire a new syncretic third false history that was constructed yeah. only Which, within you. And so like, 100%, in, in, and I... in infinitude of like falseness that, that gets populated. Yeah. 100%, and, and that's a really good point because that's exactly what happens to many characters in The Saint of Bright Doors, right? Um, especially, I love, uh, I, I don't love him, he's an awful character. I, I love him in a literary sense. Vido, who's like the um, bookkeeper or the journalist of the perfect and kind, um, who has eidetic memory, but he, um, Vajra does this really interesting thing where he says, remembering is not knowing, right? Just like being able to list a list of ingredients on the recipe is not cooking the dish. So this guy like remembers everything that's ever happened and he's ever heard, but he has zero understanding of the world and he's this very subservient and pathetic character which, which serves the perfect in kind, who again is the image of imperialism, colonialism, colonialism and, and that's like Vajra's um, uh, pot shot at academics, right? And the way that academia um, services imperialism by saying, if we only document things right, properly, if we only just like um, create lists of things that happened, then we would know the actual thing. And he's like, no, you idiots, because this guy rewrote the things that you are researching. When you list out things and you create these like catalogs of the things that existed, you are cataloging the existence that this imperial figure has already brought to life. But uh, then, okay, so all this stuff is negative, right? It's all the criticism that this book levies and does it pretty well, I think better than a lot of other books in, in the genre at imperialism. But what, what like is the positive element of um, The Saint of Bright Doors? And, and kind of like, what does it, what happens with Fetter and, and what's the resolution? So Fetter spends a lot of the book, by the way, like Severian, like um, uh, Langdon mentioned, doing fuck all. And doing fuck all and being like really emo about it, right? Like wallowing in his like his despair and how he's unchosen and how fate will always catch him and, and destiny and so on. And how like he doesn't want to kill his father because that's what his mother told him that he is born to do, right? And he's like, no, I refuse all chains. The chain of my mother telling me to kill my father is just as bad as the chain of my father, um, you know, with his imperialism. And like the book drives towards this understanding of, no, you fucking loser. <laughs> That's, they're not the same. Your mother made you into the weapon that you are because she is trying to revenge, avenge an entire culture that's been erased. Like, your father is an awful, awful man who is genociding millions of people and erased the history of an entire kind, and you are the only thing that can destroy him. That's why he's called Fetter, right? His, his father named him because he is his weak point, right? He is the link in the chain that can destroy him. And only when Fetter goes and meets his father, tries to kill him, fails, meets him, you know, gets um, associated with him and understands how fucking evil he really is, does his father die. Now, you might have noticed that I didn't say that Fetter kills him because he doesn't. The person, person, quote-unquote, entity, <laughs> um, that kills 
the perfect the kind is the killer is Fetter's Shadow. So this book does one of my all-time favorite things, which is kind of like House of Leavesian in, in, in a way. There's the entire book, like 85% of the book is told from the third-person perspective, right? Like Fetter goes this, this happens to Fetter, Fetter said this, Fetter felt this, and so on. And then there's one paragraph completely dropped without any warning where the narrator says that the perfect and kind is looking at him. That is, the, the, the words are, and then he looked at me. And you're like, huh? Hold on. Who's this first-person voice? And then in the last chapter of the book, which is completely different from the rest of the book, kind of reminds me of Jeff Vandermeer's Dead Astronauts. Never mind, too many tangents. Um, it shifts into the perspective of Fetter's shadow. Turns out that when the shadow was separated from Fetter, it became its own entity, which has been assisting Fetter all, the, all along. It's been assisting him by um, nudging him in the right direction for like the sensations and what Fetter calls his luck. It's been going around the globe and um, learning information and things that Fetter needs to know. And it's, in general, it's been guiding Fetter towards this moment. Now, two things. One, I'm being completely serious, dear listener. The way the shadow kills his father is by hiding in the semen of... Um, no, sorry. It's, it's hiding in the mouth of Vido so that when the perfect and kind comes in his mouth, he rides his dick <laughs> into the most perfect and kind's body. Right? It's cuckoo so that, bananas. I, I, yeah. was, I was fucking hooting reading that. <laughs> yeah, it was so good. It's so good because, like the shadow says, I can't really enter through his like eyes or ears like I would do with someone else because he sees me, right? But if I enter at the base of his body, like the most carnal point of his body, he's blind to it. Again, because he is imperialism, right? And imperialism's denial of the body. We're not going to go on that tangent. Google it and read like all the articles. That have, read Franz Fanon, okay? Just read, read Franz Fanon. Um, but like uh, cap, uh, uh, imperialism's objection of the body and so on, it uses that to like ride his body and then basically give him cancer um, and, and kill him from the inside, which is fucking sick. But second of all, something really interesting um, it, it, he doesn't tell you this, uh, Vajra, that is, doesn't tell you this, but if you're paying attention, then you, you find it out. The shadow says that when he distances himself away from Fetter, like he goes off on these tangents to learn all these things and spy on people because he's a shadow and all that stuff, he loses perception of what is happening to Fetter. Right? He can always feel him on the outskirts, but when he um, gains distance, Fetter becomes like... Um, you know, like a sensation, like this pulsing kind of uh, bundle of emotions, and he doesn't know specifics, which means that the entire book is told to you by an unreliable narrator. And a lot of the blanks that happen in the book, and there are blanks, like things move forward very quickly suddenly, or relationships suddenly morph into something else and you don't really understand why, or key scenes are not described fully. That's because the shadow, who's your narrator, leaves Fetter, and you're not told, because why would you be you loser? No, I'm joking. Um, it it's so fucking good because again, it's Book of the New Sun. Book of the New Sun doesn't tell you Severian is an unreliable narrator. In fact, it tells you he's a reliable narrator, the most reliable narrator. But then starts to wink at you, and this book is like one giant fucking wink at the end, going, 
okay, do you get it though? Right? Like the reason you saw Luriat in such a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, obscured way. The reason that Fetter seems incongruous sometimes with himself. The reason that people and, and acts and, and political movements sometimes jump. All that stuff is because you didn't know that there is a narrator who is a character in this book and it is unreliable. It's really, 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 really well done and, and very elegant and, and subtle. And I, I'll be very honest with you. Up until like the last chapters of the book, I was like, this is good. Right? Like eight out of 10, solid book. I enjoyed it. Like the language is very descriptive and very worth it. But then the end, the end of Fettel's story and this whole twist with the shadow is so, so good and really elevates this book into something that is, I feel like is truly special. I mean, the one thing that I really like about the book is that it, uh, without, <laughs> without rehashing some pet arguments that we've had elsewhere to a great extent, the, the great leftist game of um, communists and anarchists yelling at each other, <laughs> that's the true great game. Um, uh, is there has long been this sort of resistance if anything the primary critique from from commies towards anarchists is there's long been this kind of wariness to actually take system making seriously that like the notion because the pet critique of anarchists from our kind of space is that they will correctly see that the system making of empire is inherently brutal and and painful and destructive but then they will take the stance that then what we must do is overthrow all systems and uh make in in our image no further systems which on paper feels very good feels very idealistic the problem is we can't do that the problem is the human brain the human cultures all revolve around these things this is where more sophisticated anarchists would go for like holocratic or temporary structures or um structures of consent things like that but then you get the secondary problem of why would say a fascist consent to the system that will inhibit their fascism so you build out the this isn't to say that there aren't anarchists who have interesting uh from my perspective and from other perspectives potentially correct analytics of it it's just to say that like we do see a lot the very kind of lazy stance of like, well, we got to overthrow like all hierarchies, man. And without realizing that like these are structures with which we make the world legible and make communication possible. This takes the more sophisticated stance of like, if we are enmeshed in the twin poles of archaeology and architecture, these are the ways in which we order the world both for the future through uh architecture future slash present and for the past through archaeology um we must become engaged in this process as well it basically tables covertly what a lot of people would call the tanky argument of like why communism instead of anarchism like this sort of outlines why i feel so moved by a notion like communism which is built around building systems and building like new methodologies or like differently structured methodologies not abandoning the notion of methodology um which that i think for me is one of the most subtly refreshing parts because we get a lot of a lot of the wave of like sci-fi and fantasy that um tor.com has positioned itself to be 
near the front of that gets a lot of flack winds up rankling me a bit because of kind of that tie to an almost like baby's first anarchism view of like oppression bad so let's do the opposite of oppression and if you go like what's the opposite of oppression they go no systems man nothing telling you whatever and you go how yeah. do you deal with a fascist then if you're not telling them no <laughs> like um th this this takes a much better and much more mature tack yeah i think it basically it it also tries to combat a lot of what we see from the more i don't know how to call them like authoritarian whatever you want to call it um communist circles of like you're right that we need to organize and we need to create a critical mass and we need to change things at a higher level but we also need to do something right fucking now like we yeah. need to do something horrible shit is happening everywhere and by calling everything adventurism and everybody who tries to do something scoffing at them saying like you're not prepared or whatever um we are doing damage at some point we need to act and that's like the whole book is people trying to get fetter to wake up to realize what's happening and him blithely like sinking deeper into self-pity and remorse and not noticing for example that Luriet is breaking down right? like at some point someone says a white year is coming he's like oh what's that and like that's when the plague and the pogroms are so big that the the piles of corpses like pile high in, in the city and he's like Oh, that, that sounds like it sucks. Anyway, my <laughs> mother was really mean to me when I was a kid. And then when, um, more important, and, and maybe this is the last thing I'll say and we'll wrap it up, the, the crossroads of the book where, where things change, the crucible for, for which, literally, for which Fetter passes is when his mother dies. And he goes back um, to visit her and, and he understands a lot of things and he walks through the fire. When he comes back, he gets processed by the system. He gets picked up as like an immigrant and sent through the camps. And this is obviously a Siddhartha thing, right? Like he sees the world, how it is, and the suffering of people and how they actually live. And he works through the bowels of that system to find himself back in Luria during this white year. He experiences the pogroms and some of the, like, the most hard-to-read like, passages of the book with people self-emulating and um, cultists on the street like butchering people. It's really awful. And that's what it takes to like, wake, him, wake him up. Um, so the book has... A lot to say both about inaction and about action, right? Um, which again just, you know, uh, contributes to um, its subtlety and, and the power of its delivery. And by the way, to come full circle, really does put it on par with Sophia Samatar's work, right? You can't read Sophia Samatar and figure out like a simple narrative for what power does and what power is and how we should read it. Same thing here. Like it's very complex. It's very subtle about what it has to say about all of these things um okay the saint of bright doors um by the way um vajra chandra sakera has another book coming next year um its name has already been announced it's called rake's fall um and i can't wait to read it now that i've read saint of bright doors um i hope uh, it is good and in the meantime still have just the Saint of Bright Doors, which is a really good book, and I very much encourage you to listen to it. Uh, music. Uh, um, I have one that I want on. to do. Yeah, I was going to ask. So, um, there's a band that I really, really like. I you know, was friends with the person a little bit on Twitter before they dropped their first record. Um, then they kind of went silent. 
um, for a long time for reasons dealing with like record label stuff and writing the record, just life, the COVID, um, called Bolivapis Bolivron. Um, Hell yes. I, I, I love their first record offerings of Flesh. Hell fucking yeah. Loved it's so it. fucking good. So as yeah. someone who, I, we've talked about this on the podcast before, someone who's involved in like magic and occult stuff, um, seeing someone who is one, not a fascist piece of shit who likes that stuff two has their head screwed on. Like, isn't going like, I am literally controlling the fabric of Rhea. Like that's like, no, you take yeah. your meds kind of shit, like not doing that, but going like, you know, I find, you know, uh, uh, the power and ritual and, you know, all that kind of, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, making a really brilliant, um, and deeply progressive black metal record in a way that, uh, uh, a, a way that I think kind of got lost for a bit in the whole wave of of like black gays and so many black gays bands, um, and like atmospheric black metal bands and all that. Not to knock that stuff, just we did we got a shitload in like a like a six year window. Um, so the band went completely silent, and I was wondering like what the hell was going on. I figured you know I was worried that you know the band's not gonna, um. In the middle of the summer, they announce, or the main guy announces, one, it's a band now. So, like, people that he'd been playing with um, for, like, a couple live dates or whatever are now properly in the band. They've been writing together, and they're going to be recording together. Um, they have a second record written, and it's going to come out. And I'm like, okay, I'm fucking pumped. But, you know, there's always yep. the level of trepidation when there's a band that has, like, one or two records that you really like, and they have a new one coming out. If you're in this kind of game long enough that we are, you know, there's a lot of bands that have, like, have the song for, like, one record. And then after that, you like, okay, maybe you only should have put out the one. Maybe I don't need any of these other ones because they're not good. So it's, it's, it's a little, you know, I was I was anxious. Um, I didn't listen to the single when it dropped. I was like, I just want to listen to the full record. I only listened to it yesterday. Holy fuck, <laughs> this album is good. The vocals are it's way nastier. Like everything's foregrounded. There's it's not that it doesn't have atmosphere. It's that like there's a lot of real presence. It feels like a metal record, not like a yeah. an ambient record that has, you know, like freaking so fucking good. Um I really want to play uh either the opening track trophy or the final track, Ecstasis and Stasis and the Fractal Ouroboros. Um, I want to say two things about this album, or a lot about this group. One, they got um, Alex CF to do the cover art. Um, Alex has worked with really good bands like Fall of Frafa, Moro, Archivist, um, and a lot of really other fantastic bands. And his art style is so good. He also did the previous one for Bolo Vapis. Yeah. Um, but basically, if you go to like Alex's site and just listen to every album he's worked on, they're all really good, um, like underground um, US releases, which is phenomenal. The other thing is, um, one of the members of um, Bowl of Apis, Bowl of Bronze, who goes by the name Afshian on this release, is also the person behind Fogweaver. Which is an oh, Ursula Le Guin themed. I did not. Yeah. I did not know that. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, 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 and also like a wind-themed uh, dungeon synth. Now, I am famously a dungeon synth hater. Same. Um, but Fog Weaver is fucking brilliant to the extent that I have uh, two of the t-shirts. Also because also Le Guin themed t-shirts. Please listen to Fog Weaver. Uh, specifically listen to um, the self-titled debut and In the Kingdom of Fog, which is a split they did with uh, Fog Castle, Fog Lord, and Fog Weaver, which is really, really cool. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant album that I think puts a lot of Dungeon Sift to shame. So those are my two shout-outs. This, uh, the, the Fractal Robberus is such, such a good album. Um, and we're playing Ecstasis and Stasis and the Fractal Robberus. Please enjoy, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.